we're going to spend this first part of the year talking about seven habits that will help make that happen. Uh, this, is, this is one of the most important series of conversations we've had in a long, long time. Uh, so I'm, I've been excited about this. Before we jump in, I want to tell you there are two things that you're going to be hearing about repeatedly through the month of January, repeatedly and early part of February. We're going to tell you over and over again that we would like for you to invest in a small group. And we're going to tell you over and over again, we've got several mission trips coming this year. You're thinking, no, not me. I don't have time this year. Stop that. Just at least consider it. Uh, we're going to have several mission trips this year, and we want you to invest. So you're going to be hearing about those two things repeatedly through the month of January. But this morning, we're going to start uh, a fun and exciting series of conversations we're calling Set Sail. Let me kick us off with prayer. Father, thanks so much for drawing us together. We believe that's what you've done. We don't believe we're here by accident. And some of us are stumbling into this conversation online, or we may look at it later, Lord. This might not be Sunday morning for us, but we're, we're here because you've drawn us. Uh, those of us who are here this morning, Lord, we welcome your presence. I pray that you would forgive me of my sin and eliminate what would prevent you from speaking. And I pray, Lord, in each of us who are listeners this morning, that you would eliminate what would prevent us from being, from hearing you, from being a listener. Uh, speak. Your servants are listening. Here, here we are, use us. Here we are, send us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we tend to approach our spiritual life and our emotional life we tend to approach our spiritual life in one of three ways. So I want you to think this morning of a boating analogy. We tend to either be rowboaters or rafters or sailboaters. For those of us who are rowboaters, our connection with God is all about our effort. It, it, and it may be praying or reading the Bible or going to church or doing good things. We think that we get a better version of ourselves and, and we gain uh, a closer connection with God by our effort. And I'm better, plus I'm better than most people, so I'm okay. This also tends to be rowboaters, how we train our children, both, both directly in our teaching and, and by example. We tend to train them that a relationship with God is about working at religion. So we want them to be good practicing Catholics, or we want them to be good Bible-knowing Baptists, or we want them to be good volunteering gatewayers. Wait, that last one isn't bad. But anyway, and for those of us who are rafters, our spiritual life is it's just there. We, we've always believed in God. We, we kind of assume it. It's, it's, it's underneath. It's, it's always been there, and it, and it takes us wherever it will. We're, we're floating along. Sometimes we, we maybe get into trouble, or sometimes we feel a little bit lost, or we've lost the narrative on our life, and we, we want to do something more. Maybe we try for a little while to be more proactive about our spiritual life or, or in our emotional connections with others, but we, we really don't know what to do, and pretty soon, smoother waters emerge, and we go back to floating. We usually train our children to be floaters as well. We assume, we assume they're picking it up along the way. We bring them to church every now and then. I mean, we picked it up. 
Once in a while, we wonder if we should give a little more energy to answering their questions or, or actually explaining things to them, maybe even training them, but we really don't know what to say, and ultimately, we just float along. But the Bible advocates an approach more like the third approach, more like sailing. There's work to be done in sailing. There are skills to be developed. But uh, our, our connection to God is really a lifestyle of dependence. Our, our speed depends entirely on the wind. Our, even our direction depends on the wind. Our journey is fueled by right participation with the wind. Our journey, our progress is fueled by right participation with the wind. Understanding it, developing habits and skills that allow us to utilize it. The whole key is learning how to utilize the wind, surrendering to the wind, letting the wind drive us. And in this case, of course, the wind is the spirit. So let's begin our year by setting sail spiritually. Now to do that effectively, we're gonna have to learn some spiritual sailing habits. We're gonna have to learn how to set the sails and how to tighten the sheets and how to use the tiller and, and how to tack and, and how to sail at close hauled and how to sail at beam reach and, and how to avoid going into irons. It will be helpful if we have a growing understanding of how all of that works together and the, the dynamics of what makes a sailboat work. As, as I said, we need a set of habits that will enable us to utilize the wind and will consistently encourage us to participate with and surrender to the wind. By the way, some of you may be wondering, how in the world does Ed know so much about sailing? So I'll give you a couple of options to explain that. Option one, I used to go sailing all the time with a very wealthy uncle. At one point, we, went, we sailed around the world, during which I had incredible adventures, basically became super cool. Option B, I watched a 25-minute YouTube video. You decide which one you think it was. So... <laughs> Over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at habits that will allow us to utilize the wind, habits that will make us effective spiritual sailors. We're going to talk about seven habits which, if practiced, will allow us to, to set sail this year. We're going to end this year better emotionally and spiritually than we are right now. We really are. All right, the first habit that will enable us to utilize the wind is the habit of using resources with wisdom and purpose. At the risk of being obnoxious, we're going to say that together on three, using resources with wisdom and purpose. One, two, three. Using resources with wisdom and purpose. They said so energetically. How we use our resources is a very big deal. Look, we know this. This is why you read books on time management. Go to seminars. This is why you consult an investment specialist. How you use your resources is critically important. I want you to listen to how Paul highlights this in one particular passage. He's going to focus in this passage exclusively on money. But what he says about money applies equally to all of our resources. So let's look at 1 Timothy 6 3 through 19. Now, there's a paragraph in this, uh, in this passage that we won't have time to deal with this morning, but this is just a really rich paragraph. You're going to be familiar, most of you, with a couple of verses from this, even if you haven't read this in a really long time. But Paul is going to talk here about the wise and purposeful use of our resources and how critically important that is. 
1 Timothy 6, 3 through 19. I'd love for you, if you have a Bible on your phone or uh, a physical Bible, I'd love for you to look along, but it's going to be on the screen for us. Let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's Word. So he has, he has we're, we're at the end of Paul's letter to his disciple, Timothy. He's been telling him some things that he wants Timothy to keep in mind. He says, these are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching. They are conceited and understand nothing. And he's battling here in, in his context with a set of false teachers. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. They've pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Jesus Christ who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. I charge you to keep this command without spot or, or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him. Be honor and might forever. Amen. Now, command those who are rich in this present world. There's a parenthesis in the original uh, that sometimes isn't translated. It reads, especially those in northern Virginia suburbs. <laughs> Not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. You can't build a life on that. You can't, you can't build anything on, on money. It's uncertain. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share in this way. They will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that's truly life. You may be seated. All right, I hope you noticed that according to verse 9, the wrong use of our resources can be deadly. Throw up this next screen, Thomas. And according to verse 19, the right use of our resources can be profoundly life-giving. The difference is stark in how we use our resources. And this difference is critical to our connection to God. The way we use our resources will either support our connection with God or it will work against it. The way we use our resources will either support our connection with God or it will work against it. Or to use our analogy, the way we use our sails will either utilize the wind or it will work against it. It will help us make spiritual progress or it will work against it. The way we use our time, energy, and money will work for us, for our benefit, for our connection with God, or it will work against it. 
So let's drill down on this passage to make our point. And the first point I'm really going to make several times, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat this animal dead because we need to hear it. Uh, let's drill down by, I want to organize our thinking today, if we can, around an unconventional statement that, that I hope will, will, will prick our imaginations. I've borrowed it from John Piper's book, Desiring God. And we'll use the statement to turn our thinking on its head. John Piper is absolutely right when he says this. Money is the currency of Christian hedonism. Money is the currency. It's, 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 how, we, uh, it's what, how we buy. It's what we use to make Christian hedonism. To, to Christian hedonism. Now, hedonism technically means the pursuit of pleasure, wantonly, or self-indulgence. So this needs some explanation. <laughs> well, in this passage we just read... Paul begins by warning Timothy, remember, about these false teachers who were creating the desire in their followers to use their connection to God to get rich somehow. Look at verses 4 and 5. Evidently, these false teachers were stirring up pointless controversies with argumentative, quarrelsome teaching. They may have been encouraging their followers to believe that they alone had the real truth. Worst of all, they were encouraging their followers to believe that godliness is a means to financial gain. Godliness is a means to financial gain. In other words, if we're godly, then God will always bless us financially. This thinking leads to a in a couple of terrible directions. Number one, obviously, this thinking leads people to believe that being spiritual results in doing well financially. At least their version of being spiritual. Always works one-to-one -one correspondence. Second, second terrible thing about this teaching is it enabled teachers, and you see this if you read the whole uh, letter to Timothy, it enabled these teachers to, to get rich themselves. It, it created the opening for these teachers to say, hey guys, you should be paying me a lot of money for this deep teaching I'm giving you because that would honor God and it's what God wants for me. As you may know, this exact thinking is extremely influential in many Christian settings today. There are places in our country where this idea has flourished. The idea that uh, God will bless you financially if you, if you connect to him in the right way. It's sometimes called the faith movement or the health and wealth gospel. Plus, as many of you have experienced, this teaching has been hugely influential in Africa and South America. Most of us have had some exposure to it. And even if you're not familiar with this teaching formally, you're still tempted by it. For some of us, it's, it's not even conscious. We just, we hold to it at the deepest part of ourselves. We're convinced that if we're nice people, then God will bless us. And that blessing includes financial blessing. He owes us that. If I get it right with God, then he's bound to bless me financially. In other words, godliness is a means to financial gain. But Paul rejects this kind of thinking utterly. Godliness is not a means to financial gain. Godliness is not a means to financial gain. This is utterly wrong. He scoffs at the idea. But, as we... As we read through this passage, we can't help but notice what Paul doesn't say. Don't miss this. He doesn't say, hey, godliness is not a means to financial gain because 
Christians are the kind of people who aren't even interested in such things. Christians do things without regard for their own gain. In fact, we're the kind of people who aren't even interested in our own happiness even. This is what we might expect Paul to say. That's what we sometimes believe God wants us to think. But this is not what God tells us anywhere. There's a French mathematician, Blaise Pascal, was absolutely right when he observed this. And this, is, this quote's on the screen for you. All men seek happiness without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. But wait, aren't we as Christians different? Aren't we supposed to be people who aren't interested in our gain, aren't interested in our happiness? Again, surprisingly, this is not what God says. God acknowledges our desire for happiness. He created that desire. Please don't miss this, but what he does is offer us a deeper, richer kind of happiness, and, and, and he offers us the right method for pursuing our happiness. He offers what, what Piper calls Christian hedonism. In other words, there is a Christian way of pursuing my personal gain and my happiness. And in the end, it is the only way that is reliable and sustainable and results in real happiness. That way, the Christian way is to use my resources with wisdom and purpose to be generous and to do good deeds. Let me repeat, the desire for my life to be richer and fuller and happier, God does not denounce that desire. In fact, he spells out for us how to get there. It involves the right use of our resources. God wants us to use our resources in a way that actually works toward our long-term happiness. He wants us to be accomplished sailors who get where we actually want to go. In short, again, Paul offers up an argument for Christian hedonism. Godliness is not a means to financial gain, he says, but there's something better. There's a truly great gain when, when true godliness is matched with contentment. When we spend our resources unwisely and without purposes, or when we let our resources, our stuff, for instance, overtake us or our schedules overtake us, when we're not using them with wisdom and purpose, then we end up sickening our souls eventually. We, we plunge ourselves into to ruin of one form or another. We make less of our lives than God intended. But when we use our resources effectively, we take hold of life now and forever. We, we set sail. If our resources are the currency of Christian hedonism, it means that we can use our resources to secure our truest joy and satisfaction instead of using our resources to secure our ruin. This is, by the way, true of all of our resources. As we've said, it is supremely true of our money. That's why money is the chief topic of this passage, I think. What Paul says here of money is certainly true of our, all our resources, but he zeroes in on money because he knows where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So how? What do we do to use our resources to grow lives? We've already hinted at it, but let's spell it out. To grow lives that are full of life, our time, our, our energy, our creativity, especially our money. 
How do we use them to secure our long-term happiness? How do we set sail? I want to organize, I'll give you the backdrop, and then we'll answer that question fully. I want to organize Paul's comments here, we'll do this quickly, into two actionable ideas. We're going to summarize his, his, what he says here into two ideas that we need to walk away with and remember. And then at the end, really quickly, I'm going to give you nine practical suggestions because this does have to become actionable for us. And I promise I won't spend more than 10 or 15 minutes on each of those suggestions. Okay, so uh, the first thing we need to do, two actionable ideas. The first thing we need to do is to reject the idea that our happiness can be won through financial gain. We've said this in everything we've said thus far, but we need to reject the idea that our happiness can be won through financial gain. We really do think that we'll be happier if we just have more. And that sets us up to be deluded into thinking that we'll have more if we have God stuff. It seems like a perfectly fine equation, but this is deadly thinking. We have to reject that. Uh, This idea that happiness comes through financial gain is deeply ingrained in our culture. Deeply ingrained in our culture. And we are deeply committed to it. For some of us, our commitment to this assumption is how we ended up in the suburbs. Uh, I read an article in 2012 from The Atlantic. It's fascinating. That su- it, surprisingly, it made the same point as the Apostle Paul, but in a different way. The author began by noting how over the last hundred years, we've turned yesterday's luxury products into today's necessities. Listen to this. In 1900, less than 10% of families, 1900, less than 10% of families owned a stove or had access to electricity or phones. In 1915, less than 10% of families owned a car. In 1930, less than 10% of families owned a refrigerator or a clothes washer. In 1945, less than 10% of families owned a clothes dryer or air conditioner. In 1960, less than 10% of families owned a dishwasher or color television. In 1975, less than 10% of families owned a microwave. In 1990, less than 10% of families had a cell phone or access to the internet. (laughs) The article concluded by saying this. Today, at least 90% of all American households have a stove, electricity, car, fridge, clothes washer, air conditioner, color TV, microwave, cell phone, and internet. These products may make our lives easier, but do they make us happier? And they are, it seems, never enough, end quote. The article argues that the primary effect of all of this is that it simply created a deeper desire for more. In other words, we have exaggerated our dissatisfaction. Enough is never enough. This is why Paul says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Then Paul gets really practical, doesn't he? Still, we're rejecting this idea. He gets really practical. He knows we need convincing. So he gives us three reasons in this text why we should reject belief, the belief that our happiness can be won through financial gain. First, he says, as Billy Graham once said, there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. Verse 7, we brought nothing into the world and take nothing out of it. 
So by definition, it's silly to hold on to things. It's pointless to make them the object of our lives. Number two argument that Paul makes, making financial gain our goal leads in some really bad directions. According to verse 9, it plunges us into ruin and destruction. Look at that. The third thing he says, before we get to the third thing, in his autobiography, Just As I Am, Billy Graham recalled this compelling story. Graham said, some years ago, Ruth and I, Ruth is his wife, Ruth Graham, some years ago, Ruth and I had a vivid illustration of this on an island in the Caribbean. One of the wealthiest men in the world had asked us to come to his lavish home for lunch. He was 75 years old, and throughout the entire meal, he seemed close to tears. He said, I am the most miserable man in the world. Out there is my yacht, I can go anywhere I want to. I have a private plane, my helicopters. I have everything I want to make my life happy, yet I am as miserable as hell. We talked to him and prayed with him, trying to point him to Christ, who alone gives lasting meaning to life. Then we went down the hill to a small cottage where we were staying. And that afternoon, the pastor of the local Baptist church came to call. He was an Englishman. And he too was 75, a widower who spent most of his time taking care of his two invalid sisters. He was full of enthusiasm and love for Christ and others. I don't have two pounds to my name, he said with a smile, but I'm the happiest man on this island. Billy Graham relates how he asked his wife Ruth after they left, who do you think is the richer man? She did not have to reply because they both already knew the answer. Three, third reason Paul gives us. Uh, It comes later. We skip that paragraph, we go down to verse 17. He says, because money is so uncertain. It's stupid to make financial gain, the goal of our lives, because money is so uncertain. Interestingly, he gives this advice to people like us in particular. He starts that paragraph by saying, as for the rich in this present age. Evidently, we in particular are prone to forgetting that money is so uncertain. Remember, What we're rejecting is the belief that our truest happiness can be secured through financial gain. Paul tells Timothy to flee that kind of thinking. We are not rejecting money. We are rejecting money as a goal. Listen, great personal gain is possible for us, and we are right to desire it. But great personal gain comes through godliness with contentment. I want you to see this on the slide, and I'm going to say it again. Great personal gain comes through godliness with contentment, and I'm repeating that because when we hear great personal gain, we almost automatically associate that with financial gain, don't we? So first of all, if, we're going to use, if I'm going to use my resources with wisdom and purpose, I've got to reject the idea that my happiness can be won through financial gain. Secondly now, second big Paul idea, if I want to use my resources to secure my truest happiness, I will use my resources to be generous and to do good deeds. Verse 17 through 19. This is what it means to be a Christian hedonist. We are pursuing our greatest good, but we're pursuing it through the most effective means. By using our resources to be generous, we will be setting our sails and steering our ship toward maximum generosity of living. Again, verse 17 through 19, command those who are rich in this present world, don't be arrogant. 
I've given you all this stuff for your enjoyment, but command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, generous, willing to share. Paul begins this section by giving us the negative, doesn't he? Don't be arrogant, he says, which is easy to do when you're wealthy. Don't put your hope in wealth, which is easy to do when we have a lot of it. Professor Kathleen Voss from the University of Minnesota's Carlston School of Management conducted a series of long-term studies a number of years ago on attitudes that accompany wealth. It was fascinating. I want you to listen to some of her conclusions. Quote from the study, a mounting body of research is showing wealth can actually change how we think and behave. For example, rich people have a harder time connecting with others. They tend to show less empathy. They are less charitable. They are less likely to help someone in trouble. And they are more likely to defend an unfair status quo. She concludes, quote, money, in other words, changes who we are, end quote. One interesting uh, feature of the studies is they used a technique known as priming. So they would, they led people to believe going into the study that they would be receiving a large sum of money. And they found, listen to this, they found that even the suggestion of getting more money made people less friendly, less sensitive to others, and more likely to support statements like some groups of people are simply inferior to others. After giving us the negative, Paul then gives us the positive. Look at the end of verse 17. He says, instead, put your hope in God who provides you with everything for our enjoyment. And then comes the application, verse 18. They are to do good deeds, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. If we want to use our resources to secure our truest happiness, we will be generous and willing to do good works. So if we're going to set sail this year, if we're going to make spiritual and personal progress, then we've got to begin by using our resources with wisdom and purpose. This facilitates our best selves and our truest happiness. Let's state the obvious before I conclude. We can use our resources in a variety of ways. We can use our resources to pursue pleasure. And that works temporarily. We can use our resources to build comfort and convenience for ourselves. And that works temporarily. But if we want to be sustainably happy and if we want to deepen our connection with God, we will use our resources with wisdom and purpose. And this means we will reject the idea that our happiness can be secured through financial gain and we will be generous and do good deeds. One final note. Look, it's interesting the way Jesus Christ really, we know this, this is why we're here, but Jesus Christ is central. He's the central figure in this whole drama and how we, how we exercise this, how we think about this. We see this especially in the paragraph, verses 11 through 16, that I didn't get to go over this morning. Jesus Christ made life available to us, real life. Then we don't have to spend, because of that, we don't have to spend our time and energy and money in wrong ways and wrong places. We, we can pursue real life, real happiness in our connection with God because Jesus Christ made that possible. So let's resolve this year to be Christian hedonists. Let's use our resources with, to secure our highest and truest happiness. Let's use our resources with wisdom and purpose. Let's say it set sail spiritually. All right. In conclusion, uh, let's make this actionable. Nine, grab one of these or four. Nine actionable practices, not nine to-dos 
that can help us move toward using our resources with wisdom and purpose, greater wisdom and purpose this year. Number one, make a plan for how to give away more money this year than last year. Couple of bullets, give more money to Gateway. If you're connected to Gateway, give more money to Gateway. I promise that's not self-serving. That's not gonna change how much I get paid. But if you're connected here and you do not give to Gateway, Try to figure out this year how to get started in that direction. If you give this year, think about giving more or give more to other causes that are God-honoring and that move your heart. Give more this year. Secondly, ask God to help you identify a new generosity habit this year and then do it. And be creative. And I'm serious about this one. Several years ago, there was a person in our congregation who decided partly because we were talking about something like this one Sunday morning, they decided that they were going to come every Sunday to Gateway. It doesn't have to be inside our church, but just some new generosity habit. But they decided they were going to come to church every Sunday, uh, uh, once a month, one Sunday a month, and bring $100 and just grab whoever they could, take them out to lunch, they were going to pay. It'd have to be $200 today, but still. Uh, and, and it worked. They built great relationships with people. They got to know folks. They were always the one paying. Three, read a time management book this year. Most of you have done that. Do it again. It's good to tweak this. Like, I don't know, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the Stephen Covey book. Or you might not have heard of this one, Ordering Your Private World, Gordon McDonald. It's a great one. He, he was a pastor years ago. Four, Read an inspiring biography this year. Decide to do it. It will make you want to use your, your, your time and your energy more effectively, more for God. There's a great biography by Dietrich bon, about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Somebody recently gave me a new biography of a man named Dallas Willard. Uh, Hamilton, read Hamilton. You will realize you've done nothing with your life. Uh, read Billy Graham, just as I am. Fifth, take a personal all-day retreat this year. This year, all day, that takes some planning. Get away for a day and do a retreat. Six, fast from screens for a week. Holy smoke, some of you are breaking out in hives thinking about it. Seven, consider going on one of our mission trips this summer. He paused for dramatic effect. Let's all read that one on the screen. I'm talking about you and me. Eight. Volunteer with the kids' ministry at Gateway. Number nine, drink more water. That's pretty much going to be every week. We're, we are dehydrated as a population, so this year let's drink more water. John Piper is absolutely right when he says this. It's on the screen for you that it is not only permitted but commanded by God that we pursue our full and lasting pleasure and that all the evils in the world come not because our desires for happiness are too strong, but because they are so weak that we settle for fleeting pleasures that do not satisfy our deepest souls, but in the end destroy them. Let's set sail this year. Let's pursue our highest and greatest pleasure with a vengeance. Let's use our resources with wisdom and purpose. And now turn to the person that you spoke to earlier when you said, We're, you're going to be better at the end of this year, turn to them and say, you need to use your resources with greater wisdom and purpose. By the way, some of you do this well. 
you, you are an example to the rest of us. I'm serious. Turn to someone and say, you need to use your resources with greater wisdom and purpose. Go. All right, let's pray. <laughs> Father, what we have is a gift from you. Our time is a gift from you. Our resilience, our energy, our mental horsepower, our experiences, gifts from you. Here I am. And help us to use them well and wisely this year. And our money, Lord, is a gift from you. So uh, we make ourselves available to you and uh, we pray that you would help us think thoughts and make plans and then execute those plans on how to, how to use what we've been given, what we are steward of, how we use it more wisely and more purposefully this year. Use us, send us. In Jesus' name, amen.